Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening, everybody. This is Nayara here on Tell Me Everything as John takes a well-deserved break. So you've got me in the hot seat. And I welcome you to join me in the conversation. 866-997-4748. here on Sirius XM Progress Channel 127. We've got a bunch of news for you today. Not least that the FBI has managed to finally arrest the suspect in that shooting in Texas. It was a nationwide manhunt for five days. This is the man who was asked by neighbors to stop shooting in his yard and decided to turn around and kill people instead. Somehow manages to elude any authorities for several days. We are now seeing some breaking news that a suspect has been arrested. As we get more updates, I'll make sure to share them with you. It is horrific that this is where the day and age we live in, that somebody can just be so angry that a simple comment to be a little more civil will prompt them to kill other people. I I don't know if this is going to be a case of mental health crisis or you know, some underlying misogyny or any of the multitude of social issues we use to excuse the fact that rapid fire assault weapons are in the hands of civilian, right? Weapons of war are items that somebody can just use to do target practice in their backyard. That's the reality we have right now. We have more guns in America than we have people. We also have more thoughts and prayers then we have any legislation to actually address the problem. Today is also the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision leak. Y'all remember that? A year ago today, a document was leaked from the Supreme Court, the draft decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. We braced for it. The reality was still ugly when it hit. And it started a ripple effect of trigger laws in multiple states that limit the reproductive rights and the health care freedoms of women and families around the country. Now, Samuel Alito, the justice, told the Wall Street Journal just the other day that he has a, quote, pretty good idea of who leaked the draft opinion, but he doesn't have the proof to name that person publicly. 
Now, Alito is the one who's been accused by many folks of leaking the decision to uh, a particular evangelical group uh, as part of the effort to gain momentum and activism around overturning the right to an abortion. Democratic members of Congress have used that as well as a series of investigations about the practices of sitting members of the Supreme Court and ranging from accepting fancy trips to private real estate deals to meetings uh, and hunting excursions with lobbyists, right? All of that uh, that we are now seeing in the public eye because the Supreme Court has until now been the only branch of government not bound by a set of ethics. Right? They, they are accountable to each other in a social way, and that's about it. They take a lifelong oath and get to sit there until they decide to retire or croak in office. It is a tradition that goes back several decades and, like other traditions, needs to catch up with modernity. The Supreme Court actually, last year, was the first time they had live audio of oral arguments. Still don't allow cameras in there because they claim it'll turn cameras and exposure to media will turn it into a circus. But they, they did allow for live recording, right, rather live airing audio of arguments. And it's created a new level of transparency and connection with the American public about the highest court in the land. And we are all now wondering why the highest court in the land is above the rest of us when it comes to regulating their day-to-day behavior. Well, Democrats in Congress are arguing uh, that the Supreme Court should have a system of checks and balances. Uh, They held a hearing today in the Senate Judiciary Committee, though the Chief Justice was invited. He did not participate, nor did any other member of the court. Here's what uh, Senator Chris Murphy had to say, uh, giving uh, an update in his view on the legitimacy of the current court. I don't want a Supreme Court that only one quarter of the country believes in. I want a Supreme Court that the whole country believes in. And this court is poisoning their legitimacy, in part through the decisions that they make that simply don't have constitutional foundation but also in their refusal to live up to basic standards of decency and ethics. Basic standard of decency and ethics. Now, Senator Ted Cruz has his own definition of uh, what ethics should mean. And uh, over on Fox News, uh, this is the reality he was talking about. And and listen, the, the, the quote ethics complaints they're raising Every single Supreme Court justice, all nine of them, take trips across the country, take trips internationally that are paid for by others. Mm -hmm. Many of the liberal icons, Ruth Bader Ginsburg took over 100 trips. Stephen Breyer took over 100 trips. Sonia Sotomayor took over 100 trips. And all of the media, all the Democrats who are attacking Justice Thomas, they don't care at all. They're not looking at any of the Democrat justices. They're not looking at any other judges. This is a political smear job directed at Clarence Thomas because he is an extraordinary constitutionalist and the left hates him for it. Uh, Other members of the uh, Republican Party just straight up call Democrats racist because how dare they attack 
the one black member of the court, uh, they kind of forgot that there's a black woman on the court now. So, oops, there is a black woman on the court and nobody's really found anything about her being ethically challenged. Um, Clarence Thomas said that his luxury trips uh, from this GOP mega donor were personal hospitality from dearest friends. Let's not also forget that Ginny Thomas uh, is is also named in several of the documents uh, in federal investigations about the January 6th insurrection. So, you know, why? Why would now be a time that we would want to actually look at the Supreme Court and bring them in line, at least with some sense of obligation to standards of behavior, seeing as how that's all they do is talk about the standards of the law, rule of law, and how the rest of us have to operate. Dick Durbin, who was sitting in as acting chair of the Judiciary Committee, talked about how the Supreme Court won't even acknowledge that there's a problem, that this is behavior that would be unacceptable in any other branch of government, saying, how low can the court go? And because the court will not act, Congress must. This, of course, comes on top of calls to pack the court, expand it. The court's been expanded before. It did not start off as nine members, so take it up to 13 to make sure that the court actually represents the interests of the American public, uh, knowing that Merrick Garland who is now serving as Biden's attorney general, should have been President Obama's appointee to the Supreme Court. I don't know how that man sits there and watches what's going on every day uh, and just bears with it, deals with it. The Pentagon is going to be sending 1,500 active duty soldiers to the U.S.-Mexico border. Title 42, that is the immigration policy that was enacted during the pandemic saying that the risk of contagion was enough to shut the border down to any in-person asylum claims, so anything at the southern border. But hey, fly people in, no big deal. That's fine. Just the black and brown people coming in from the south. No, no. Nothing racist about that, folks. Here is what White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre had to say today as she was fielding questions about what to do about the plans or what is the White House, what is the Pentagon planning to do with the anticipated rush of immigration that'll happen at the southern border? What is the administration doing to help state and local governments prepare ahead of the expected influx of migrants? So look, it's unfortunate that uh, Governor Abbott continues to uh, play politics uh, with uh, migrants uh, and with the American people. Because what he's doing, that's what it looks like. It looks like a political stunt instead of uh, instead of trying to address the situation or maybe get the congressional members and senators that are in his state to actually ask them to work with us on truly dealing with a problem, with, with trying to figure out how do we deal with immigration reform. Instead of doing that, he wants to play politics. So that's what we've seen from this governor. It's not surprising. That's what he's continued to do. Our administration has been in touch with mayors uh, and local government to see how we can be helpful to them. That has continued over the last several months because Republicans continue to play uh, politics here to put to put uh, political stunts ahead of ahead of actually doing uh, making change. Uh, and if you think about what we put together, if you think about wanting to us to protect uh, uh, put protections for dreamers and farm workers, more immigration judges and asylum officers, more funding for border security, and and uh, 
all of this, which is part of the president's uh, president's legislation and what we've been urging Congress to act on, uh, what we saw just earlier this week is over 430 business groups wrote to members of Congress calling on them to get this done. 430 businesses have called on Congress to get this done. That is quite the list of things that need to happen in order to secure the southern border. Unfortunately, not uh, what Republicans in Congress will be funding at this point. So uh, we are continuing to see the militarization of the southern border with the Pentagon now sending 1,500 active duty soldiers uh, in advance of the end of this policy. When we come back after this break, I'm going to talk a bit about the debt limit, catch you up to speed on that and how... um, how it's looking right now, given the fact that uh, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, said, mm, the American, you know, U.S. might be in default on all of its loans uh, as soon as June 1st. Is there a hat trick the Biden administration can pull? And what does it all have to do uh, with the Fed, uh, the bank failures? Did you, did you know that four of the biggest bank failures in history, in American history, have happened since March? It's uh, shocking. And we'll get into that and all the details with our next guest who will uh, give us a expert perspective, but also an understandable perspective on what's going on with our economy. Diana Ransom will be joining us. She's executive editor of Inc. Magazine, uh, and she'll be joining us on Tell Me Everything here on Sirius XM Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back, everybody. This is Nayara filling in for John Fugelsang on Tell Me Everything. Uh, We're going to break down what's going on with the economy. I know it's not broken, um, but it's might be headed for a little bit of trouble. Uh, And our next guest, Diana Ransom, is uh, not only very smart, uh, very much an expert on these issues, she's also deeply relatable in how she talks about financial instruments, systemic issues, and even small businesses. So I'm so glad that Diana is joining me right now. Thank you, Diana. 
Well, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate the introduction. I work hard to try to mix the jargon from, you know, what I work on 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 a daily basis. So I appreciate that. I um, also appreciate what you do because I had tried to do that when I was a spokesperson at the Treasury Department in the Obama administration that was at uh, the height of the 2008 financial crisis. And wow, is there a lot to unpack (laughs) for um, for the American public about how opaque the system can be and um, how so much of what we relate to in our home budgets is not how the financial system that uh, really holds up our country, how that works. So I want to start with the debt limit. Just real quick, um, if you can Mm -hmm. take a listen to what the White House press secretary had to say um, when she was asked if President Biden would take a short-term solution to the debt limit uh, and whether or not they would just, you know, kick the can down the road till the fall. I wonder if the president would support a short-term extension to the debt limit so that conversations about budget and debt limit can continue potentially to September or for any other period of time. What I can tell you is the president believes that it is the con- is the, it is Congress's duty uh, to get this done. Uh, it is their duty uh, to um, uh, to make sure that uh, we move forward uh, with um, uh, dealing uh, with the debt ceiling. But certainly we're not going to negotiate in public. Uh, and our position is going to be very clear that Congress uh, needs to avoid a default. And I'll leave it there without conditions. But is extension on the table at all? I'm, we won't negotiate in public on, the, on any of this. What we will be very clear about is that uh, it is, uh, and our position hasn't changed, right? Congress needs to avoid a default. Now, the the debt limit is something that Congress has raised multiple times. It is part of the, you know, the credit uh, and full faith and credit of the United States as it um, lends and borrows money uh, around the world. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that, uh, you know, we, we might default as of June 1st. So why the back and forth? Why has this become such a hyper-partisan issue when it's truly about the well-being of the American economy? I guess that's always the question when it comes to Congress and Capitol Hill. But um, Why? You right? know, like, why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does it have to be? I mean, clearly no, but is it often? Yes, for sure. Um, you know, there. I would I would wager a guess, you know, or I guess more of an educated guess that um, Republicans are looking to... Uh, basically get more leverage They're, you know, they only control one chamber of Congress at this point. So how are they going to get things done um, or their own agenda done? Um, And that's through, you know, sort of holding things back or, you know, uh, giving approval for something, but, you know, only if they get something back in return. And that's what basically we're seeing with this uh, Kevin McCarthy bill um, that was recently introduced and passed in the House. Um, it's it's pretty onerous, to be frank. Um, you know, the bill is looking to claw back unobligated COVID funding, peel back tax credits, revoke IRS spending. Um, the bill would also cuts the small business small business administration staff and acts free business counseling for nearly three hundred thousand entrepreneurs. Um, that's according to the White House. So. It sounds kind of bleak Um, and it would all and, you know, by the way, it would only extend um, it would only push kick the can down the road, uh, basically relieving us of this debt ceiling um, deadline for only about a year until March Mm. 2024. 
Congress has intervened 78 times since 1960 to raise or move around the debt limit. Um, and it's 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 considered critical, right, to the mm-hmm. um, reliability of the United States of U.S. bonds as a safe and secure investment. And it's it's how the United States is able to pay for projects like the military and social programs and just trying to make it relatable to folks that this is not this is not just uh, political football about fake money. Um, mm-hmm. What is the the impact that we would see uh, as lay people if Congress were to default? Well, immediately, and this this has happened, um, you know, basically we've, we've, we've towed the line in the past. And what's happened in the past is that, you know, the U.S. Uh, credit gets uh, basically um, downgraded. And that means all of all of what we pay for, what we owe is becomes more expensive. So buying and, you know, borrowing becomes more expensive after that. Um, and, um, you know, co- other countries that we transact with would be less inclined to do, do business with us. It sort of undermines the, like you said before, just the, the, the credit of the United States. So, and that'll, that'll, you know, that'll wind its way throughout the rest of the economy, frankly. So it'll, it'll be pretty significant. And uh, that looming recession that we all have been, you know, talking about for months at this point will very clearly happen if that if that comes to pass. Well, we're also seeing uh, in in the you know uh, days of Christmas past um, the ghosts coming forward right now, um, bank failures that we hadn't seen uh, since 2008. Um, First Republic Bank, the largest U.S. bank failure since then, but we've had three, if not four just since March and starting to see uh, concerns about a confidence crisis. And, uh, you know, I know the White House is very careful about their the words they use when they talk about the economy because they don't want to be the ones to send stocks stumbling. But w- what are you hearing and seeing um, out there when it comes to, again, the, the, the value of U.S. bonds, but also the, the health of the economy? Well, what I what I think about when I this whole question comes up is, you know, just to bear in mind that 99% of all bank accounts are under now currently fall under the FDIC $250,000 minimum cap. So those are all backed by the United States government. Over that amount was where we ran into problems with the collapse of SBB, for instance. You had a lot of um, startups and um, you know, basically businesses putting their money with this bank and um, some of the uh, some of the borrowers basically had um, had a situation where they had to agree to put all of their funds into into like basically one account, which meant that some some accounts were just massive, well over the FDIC um, cap. And it was just sort of, you know, destined to to crumble at some point. Um, so you had all these these uninsured deposits. And, um, you know, that's that's going to be a problem, especially when you have bank runs. Um, mm. But, you know, the large larger point is that most most Americans don't have that much money in a single bank account. So if it's going to be a problem, I don't I don't expect like widespread bank runs, frankly, but it's, it's something to keep an eye on and um, for regulators to address. I'm glad you mentioned the regulators because that was one of the concerns in the uh, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and then the fact that Signature Bank 
followed just two days later, uh, mm-hmm. was that the San Francisco Fed uh, or the regional Fed office there, the regulators might have just gotten a little too close um, to the folks they were supposed to be managing, right? I mean, it's, it's all similar industry, similar lifestyle and areas. Um, and had uh, they did, the, the National Fed, they did take some blame for their own lapses, saying that supervisors, quote, did not fully appreciate the extent of vulnerability, vulnerabilities as SVB grew in size and, quote, did not take sufficient steps end quote, to ensure that SVB addresses its problems quickly. And one of those was they didn't have uh, stress tests often enough. Um, and they didn't, as you said, uh, the 250 limit was kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. And, you know, they maybe technically uh, could define themselves as a small regional bank, but, uh, you know, maybe just a few million dollars short of truly being one of the big banks that would then have had uh, come under Frank Dodd regulations. Do you do you see any of this, given that Congress is dealing with debt limit um, and, and you know, Republicans are arguing about how uh, if they can get any spending concessions because of the debt limit? Do you see anything about regulation being strengthened um, at this point in time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, there was this 118 page uh, report release. This was the review after SVB collapsed and the Fed, you know, in it, the Fed owned up to a number of things. One, their lapse in uh, surveillance, like you you mentioned, you know, or supervision, like you mentioned. And then another thing they pointed out, which is, you know, this was the ticking time bomb, was that a law passed in 2018 under the Trump administration basically gave small, smaller banks and regional lenders, um, you know, a buy in terms of uh, more restrictive uh, policies. So under Dodd-Frank, all banks were required or all banks over that had like more than 50 billion in assets were required to uh, comply with these certain regulations and restrictions, including being able to game out, you know, uh, what would happen in the event of a, a calamity, like just like what we've just experienced. So basically what happened, Todd Frank passed this. And then in 2018, this new law unraveled much of those, um, many of those, uh, uh, many of the restrictions, especially mm-hmm. on smaller banks and mid mid-sized banks. So now they suddenly didn't need to comply with um, these stress tests, like you mentioned, and, um, you know, having to having to figure out what to do if, if the all hell breaks loose. So it's kind of by design, frankly. And even at the time when the law passed, everyone was kind of saying at the time, this was the commentary. It was like, oh, we're good. What, what happens when like all hell breaks loose? And then look where we are. So there you go. Right. Yeah. It's the idea of the we had a whole wave of regulate regulatory effort to make sure we didn't have anything that was too big to fail again. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. just kind of allowed things to get close enough to being too big to fail. We're speaking with Diana Ransom. She's the executive editor at Inc. Uh, she has covered small business and entrepreneurship for variety of publications, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Daily News, Fast Company. And the small business piece is, is something I wanted to dig into you with you, Diana, uh, specifically mm-hmm. how uh, the SBA um, may have a solution to the current economic challenge we're facing with the collapse of regional banks and you know the worries about confidence. Um, and that that solution may be one that helps black and brown business owners. Um, 
gosh, I wish I wish I could say that I think that this is a solution for the current problem. It's more of a solution to the the problem of um, black and brown business owners not getting uh, enough access to capital, um, which has been shown in um, basically the numbers since 2007. There was a major spike in if you if we sort of look at the okay the SBA has its flagship loan called the 7A loan. Mm-hmm. And there was a major spike in 2007 where it showcased all loans under $150,000. There was a massive spike. And then since then, the, the numbers have shown that that, you know, basically smaller dollar loans have gone down dramatically. And, you know, there have been there have been waves. Right. But it's been it's been precipitous decline. Um, and so what sh- what the SBA is trying to do now is basically spur smaller dollar loans. And when I say smaller dollar loans, the import of that or the, the sort of subtext of that is really um, is really loans to underrepresented entrepreneurs and people from low income communities, those who may not need may not have more as intense capital needs, for instance. You know, it's like the people, the mom and pop shops in urban areas, for instance, they don't need, you know, massive loans to to do what they need to do on a daily basis. They might need $50,000, you know, or something like that. So it ends up being these and these loans end up being more popular among black and brown entrepreneurs. And yeah. so what you're seeing when the decline it showcases that basically black and brown entrepreneurs are not being served by this institution, which the agency itself is supposed to help you know, those who who've been turned down for a loan, they're supposed to help the people who can't get access to capital. So that's the mandate. And so it's it's actually, you know, refreshing to hear, um, I guess, an administration that's trying to trying to actually comply with the mandate. So that's what they're they're undergoing a pretty significant uh, reform effort right now. And you are uh, I'm glad you clarified, because, no, that is not a solution uh, to the regulatory challenge that we're seeing. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is, as you said, the uh, vast majority of the population that could use the government backing uh, to be able to get past institutional and historical barriers. Uh, I'm looking here and it says that 44 percent of U.S. economic activities is attributed to small businesses and uh, new jobs created between 1995 and 2020, um, 62% came from small businesses. Uh, So a lot, uh, you know, economic driver and engine, uh, one of the sectors that can help with growth, uh, but also help us carry past um, any any worries about a recession? Uh, because we've seen the larger companies conduct layoffs and and trim down in anticipation of a recession, and small businesses are the backbones of many communities. You it, when you started um, the our, our, your answer, you had mentioned a data point uh, about the increase in seven A loans. Was how much of that increase was? because people were actually encouraged and told and helped in applying as opposed to here's a government program good luck figuring it out is that is that one of the challenges that we see is black and brown people underserved communities um you know communities looking to access capital are not the ones who have the that type of uh engagement with banks or with the federal government to even access what's available 100%. And, you know, that's part of the reform effort, too, is to just simplify the the um, the system. 
So um, one of the things that they're trying to unravel is um, what's called, um, they, they, they previously, up until about like a week ago, <laughs> until they passed this reform, um, they had been, they'd required people to get, a, you know, a paper loan authorization and a digital loan authorization. So you actually literally had to go get a paper loan authorization. It's an unnecessary, um, you know, over complexity. Like you didn't, we didn't need to do that. And so the SBA, basically, they took a look at all these these systems that they had in place and were like, do we really need this? Do we really need this? Do we need to go above and beyond for this? Um, so let's try to simplify. Let's make it easier for, um, you know, a clientele that might not be as savvy, for instance. And what they say, too, is traditionally um, black and brown entrepreneurs end up a lot of times working with uh, community development um, institutions because they do go above and beyond. They do do a little bit more handholding than say like the, a, a major bank, for instance. It's sometimes folks need a little bit more, um, more aid. And, um, and it often happens because these SBA loans, for instance, they, have, they are more complex. So, um, so there's that. I so appreciate, Diana, that mm-hmm. you are focusing on um, where where the opportunities are, right? And and how just a simple thing like moving applications online or uh, you know not having that back and forth of paper um, can make a significant difference in the livelihood of a business. The what though is the connection between the uh, big bank challenges and the impact um, those failures may have on small businesses? Um, well, if the big banks are having a hard time keeping uh, the lights on, um, the, their depositors who might be small businesses might have a hard time paying their own bills. So what happened when SVB collapsed, um, that was really kind of like shocking for everybody was, you know, these several days where everybody thought their their money was gone. Nobody knew they were going to be able to make payroll on Monday. And they were, you know, all their, their money was tied up in SVB, for instance, and that's what they were going to use to make payroll. So there were, there were all sorts of conversations. Everyone, everyone had a war room. People were trying to devise, like, you know, plan B, plan C, plan Ds at this point. Um, but, like, when, you're, when your lender starts to, um, starts to get shaky, I mean, that really undermines your ability to do business. So it's, it's a problem. That is an understatement, right? The ability to do business <laughs> sure. is, is is kind of the the uh, you know basically the ability to do business is, is kind of how we try to make things work. Whether you're a small business owner or just living in a, a society, a capitalist society like we are, um, mm-hmm. Diana, what else are you keeping an eye on um, in the in, in fiscal health? Um, what what can our listeners watch out for, and and how can they help with accountability when it comes to um, our economy? Well, I think what what we've kind of seen happen in the aftermath of all of this is that um, business owners can't just, or not, they're they're realizing now that they can't just book with the biz with the bank and say like, oh, okay, it's a bank, you know, that's fine. You actually need to like look under the hood of your of your mm-hmm. lender now and make sure that they are solvent and that they do have proper diligence and that you know they're um, they have um, let's see. Uh, like how many of their deposits are uninsured, for instance, like how much how of it, I find that how out? much are they? 
well, how much are they exposed to like mortgage, mortgage backed securities, for instance, or like, you know, bonds, long term bonds? Um, you know, this is just it's going to be it's going to require a phone call probably with your lender. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just some some very pointed questions. And that's what a lot of people are having right now. It's like these very pointed questions. You know, people never imagined having this conversation, needing to have this conversation with their lender, but they're having it now. No, oh, no, right? It, it was always the, what can I do to get the money from the lender? And, and clearly they may know things and be more powerful than we are. And realizing that there has been a lot of smoke and mirrors on their end as well. Yeah. So uh, taking ownership, right, of the of your own business, right? They, they need our money just as much as we need theirs. I wish that was the case, though, but I'm going to wish that into existence. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, it's it's okay not to be perfectly savvy when it comes to this stuff. You know, just, just be a human, talk to them, you know, as a human, and, you know, get them to explain things to you. And don't feel dumb about it. Get them to explain them to you because it's important, and they should have to explain them to you in a, in a very um, conversational and, you know, understandable manner. Uh, before I let you go, what what about startups? Uh, and I don't necessarily mean big tech startups that are funded by uh, you know angel investors or, or big VCs, but just anybody trying to start up something right now. Do they have to navigate anything um, after First Republic's collapse? Yeah. So another interesting thing about um, well, I guess it's more more so with SBB and First Republic is that um, a lot of the startups were that had in, you know basically done their banking with these institutions had also gotten um, what's called venture backing or venture debt based on their their um, venture capital um, funding so they used the VC funding as collateral to get um, more debt for instance and this is you know this is something that's you know very common in the industry it's 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 good too because it's non-dilated funds so you can you can have more runway, for instance, to get your company off the ground. A lot of the businesses that were doing money with or doing business with SVB had to pull their money out, and which also meant canceling the venture debt that they had been extended. And that really, really was jarring for a lot of businesses who were relying on that capital. Um, so what they're doing now, they're trying to figure out what to do now is like, well, how do we get similar terms at a different lender, of course, but they're also going back to their VCs and trying to get trying to have conversations with them about how to maybe, you know, raise some venture debt with the VCs themselves. So it's all like kind of this really, really interesting negotiation happening at this moment. And um, what a lot of people I t- what a lot of the things that the people I talk to you say is that, you know, if you want these businesses to survive, if you want the startups to survive, those VCs are going to have to step up at this moment. Um, there is also some interesting stuff happening in terms of what the um, what the lenders are thinking of doing. So there's some talk about regional regional banks teaming up and basically syndicating loans. Um, so like, for instance, you'd have your money in one bank and then um, and then you're you're you, you and then you would basically share the um, share the fees with the different banks. So like you'd have your money across different multiple banks, but they would basically share the um, you know, the equity, share the fees. So it's a way to kind of allow them all to be under the FDIC uh, cap while also extending them, you know, kind of the similar services that they used to get. So expect a lot more, um, I guess, innovation to come out of this and um, frankly, more regulation. In that 118 page report, there was also talk about, you know, basically there was a suggestion about um, 
you know, reinstalling these restrictions on on banks. So we're going to probably see a lot more um, tightening after this. Regulations can be our friend, folks. It can protect your money <laughs> at a bank, and it also makes sure that the milk you get is actually milk in the grocery store. Uh, Diana Ransom, folks, you can follow her on social media at Diana, D-I-A-N-A, Ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M. Uh, I, I find it uh, I'm entertained by the fact that your um, last name is Ransom, and you deal I with um, financial issues. So we'll, we'll get that story um, sometime in the future. Uh, make sure to have you back. Thank you so much for helping all of us understand what is going on with our economy right now? Uh, Diana Ransom, folks. I'm your host, Nayara, here on Tell Me Everything. I want to make sure to get you in on this conversation. 866-997-4748. 866-997-4748. We'll be back with more here on Sirius XM Progress. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Nayara, here on Tell Me Everything, filling in for John Fugel saying, Marie, in Atlanta, we were talking about the Supreme Court. Do you think the Supreme Court should have a standard code of ethics? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, I was like, wait, all this time they didn't? What? Yeah, um, because generally a code of ethics has to have an enforcement mechanism. So um, as, as a member of my state bar, um, if, I, uh, if there's a complaint filed against me, I uh, have to be responsive to the um, entity within the state bar that reviews the complaint. And then um, if, if the determination is that I did something that was violative of the ethics rules, um, the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia could choose to essentially not just suspend, but revoke my license. Um, and that actually gets to the, the but there's no there's no corresponding entity mm-hmm. for a Supreme Court justice. No, because it's, it's supposed problem. to. Exactly. I mean, lawyers have ethics, right? You have an association that if you don't violate any criminal statute, but you violate the ethics of the American Bar Association, you can still, you know, they're the ones who give you the license and the bar, all of that. Doctors have these these industries that self-regulate. The Supreme Court 
is part of this industry called government. It needs to be regulated in a similar fashion. Um, Marie, appreciate it. And thank you for giving the insight um, based on your own career and your own profession. Sean, in California, you wanted to chime in about the Supreme Court. Well, I did, and I still do. Um, Number one, uh, they've proven that the Republicans on the Supreme Court are definitely politicians in robes, and they've proved that. But, you know, you're an expert in a different way. I want to just take a quick turn, which is I wanted to know your take on this big-time security breach at the Pentagon um, with the guy who got caught, you know, sending all the information out as you know the war in ukraine is going to take a big tick up now that the sun is coming out i know that's a simple thing most people aren't listening about but i'll tell you what i'm not sure how this is going to affect it i i don't have any inside information my guess is the way i follow things is it could have a profound effect um i still think ukraine's going to be have the upper hand for a lot of reasons but, you know, when you have security breaches of this sort, um, there's something that we got to do about reining in the access to all these mm. top secret documents. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you um, giving me the opportunity to speak about one of my areas of expertise of national security. I cannot believe that these entire transcripted documents of uh, compartmentalized secure information were sitting out there on a gaming server for months because this guy going by the handle of OG was trying to tell these guys in high school um, also using sexist, misogynistic and, and racist language along the way. Like, why not? But like trying to tell them how the world works and look, look what I know. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to inform you. And he turns out to be 21 years old and in the Air Reserve Guard in, in like Maine. I'm just like, why? 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 How, how, why did he need to have that high level clearance? He's 21 years old, barely out of high school, um, has, you know, probably hasn't even figured out how to navigate a real human relationship, let alone not using secret government secrets to show off to his friends, right? Like the emotional maturity clearly was not there, but it also goes to this broader idea of how the system of governance, the system of security has not caught up to the reality of technology because it took months for them to figure out that this was even out there. And it was only because somebody then posted it to Twitter and media started writing and explaining what discord is irony being of course that the military is happy to try to recruit in different gaming servers so they will try to get 18 19 year olds to sign up for the military but then not incorporate what they're learning and understanding about these tech spaces to you know deal with security issues it got to the point where president Zelensky of ukraine it's sitting in uh, a meeting with the Washington Post is like, yeah, I didn't hear about this from the White House. I found about it 
from media like everybody else. And that's not a good look. So, no, he wasn't informed by the White House. Uh, we have seen trickling out uh, analysis of what much of, you know, much of what is said in these documents has been understood in policy circles, but has not been put out transparently this way in media. I think that's some of the disconnect because it is understood that summer is fighting season anywhere, whether it's Afghanistan or Ukraine. And it is going to be a challenge for Ukraine, given that the snowy winter was what was hampering Russia, which has to physically move logistics and military uh, into Ukraine in bad weather, right? So summer is fighting season and Ukraine has already um, suffered great losses and uh, it has morale on its side, uh, but Russia has time on its side. So yes, the summer will be a challenge for the people of Ukraine. And we're going to continue to see this challenge of you know, what, what it means to be secure, whether it's our privacy or government secrets in an age of open technology and transparency. Sean, um, appreciate you um, right. bringing that. You hit it uh, out of the park. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that was helpful on multiple fronts. Bill in New Jersey, uh, talk to me about the debt limit. It sounds like you have a question or a statement about it. Maybe both. I don't know. I just thought it was odd when you said fighting season. It sounds like the most scary season that there is. And, you know, I mean, is there is there a season that's not scary when you're battling with artillery in the elements? Well, there's spring. I mean, I guess I guess you're going to battle with with bunnies and butterflies in the background. I don't know. But but yes. I never, <laughs> I never thought of seasons in terms of that way. Anyway. Uh, well, okay. But I, I will just real quick on that. It's also um, some of the, so for in Afghanistan, it was the people, you know, the Taliban or guerrilla groups would retreat into mountains because you literally physically couldn't fight. And then they'd come back out for summer fighting season. So it's just, it's just the tactical nature of things, right? Weather, weather right. makes a difference. It, it was, Right. Well, it's, it's a weird thing to hear, though, right? I, uh, I, there, there's some of the terms of art that on the inside that when I talk to regular people, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But it does it does go with surfing season about the same time anyway. Would uh, much rather be engaged in surfing season. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though I can't do it, I do it. But uh, any, anyway, uh, yeah. Regarding the debt ceiling, you know, it's a phony issue. It's something that was invented at the beginning of World War One, when people were worried about buying war bonds, whether they would be paid off or not, because you know later they had the uh, the bonus army and all that. But uh, so that the, the uh, Congress did this thing where they said, okay, we're going to verify that not only are we going to lay out the money for this, but we're going to pay our bills. So if you buy these bonds, mm-hmm. it will be secure. And Bingo. that's the only reason it was ever used. And it is, continues to use it. It is entirely but, uh, about security of the bonds and maintaining a value of the bonds. The limit itself is not the issue. It's how it's mm-hmm. connected to the value of bonds. So it is technically a law. But when I come back, I'm actually going to stick around, Bill, because I'm going to tell you something really funny about how it's the debt limit is probably unconstitutional. Folks, stick around. I'm your host, Nayara, here on Sirius XM Progress, filling in on Tell Me Everything. (music) 
Welcome back to Sirius XM Progress. This is Tell Me Everything. John Fugel saying, taking a well-deserved break. I'm your host, Nayara. You can follow me on the social medias at Nayaror, N-A-Y-Y-E-R-O-A-R. Thinking about this post-pandemic era, whether or not we really are in one, wanted to touch on some mental health issues that have been coming forward. Uh, we know anecdotally in each of our families how we struggled over the two years of lockdown, especially those of us with families with places in, like Florida where nothing seemed to change in life other than the types of books you can read and you know whether or not you could actually present yourself as your true self in society. But the Secretary General had some more data to provide on this and spoke with the Washington Post about the profound public health threat of loneliness that came out as a result of this pandemic. Joining me now is Olivier Knox. He is the editor of The Daily 202. It's a newsletter you can sign up for and get straight to your inbox. And that's what popped up for me today. And I wanted to talk to him about this big idea that the pandemic made the loneliness crisis worse. Olivier, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Olivier, the Surgeon General had a stark warning saying that loneliness is as serious a public health threat as smoking or obesity. How? Yeah, it's pretty wild, right? I mean, you you think about um, the deaths of despair that we've heard about during the pandemic. You know, people either abusing drugs and alcohol or or or, or you know just generally um, being under higher levels of stress. We've known for a long time that that stress is bad for you. Um, but what uh, what the Surgeon General Vivek Murphy uh, came back with is a, an advisory, a formal finding um, that said that about half of adults. U.S. adults experience loneliness, and it has um, it has with it brings with it a greater risk of depression, anxiety, and also heart disease, stroke, and dementia. It's pretty bad. The the some of the data points that I thought were, were interesting. Um, he said that the mortality impact of being socially disconnected. Now he's clear to say that he's not talking about screen time when he says social. He means in person connections. Mortality impact of being socially disconnected is about the same as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Um, and That's it's more than a pack. Than... Don't ask how I know that. <laughs> I won't ask. Um, and it's even greater than the uh, adverse health effects that are associated with obesity and physical inactivity. So it's a really it's a really significant health impact. Wow. But this was already a challenge. The secretary. The Surgeon General said that COVID poured fuel on a fire that was already burning. And he wants the entire country to understand, quote, how profound a public health threat loneliness and isolation pose. So what what do they say or recommend as a solution? Uh, well, he's, he talks about in this advisory, you know, advisory is a, a formal Surgeon General finding, the, maybe the most famous one being the one from C. Everett Coop, where he declared smoking was a was a major health hazard. So it's it, in his advisory, he basically talks about the need to put together some kind of a collective effort to quote, mend the social fabric of our nation. Uh, and that means teaching kids about building healthy relationships and then spending more time talking to relatives, friends, and coworkers, uh, not, not on your phone, but in person. Uh, he talks about his own personal experience of reaching out more uh, recently to, to family and friends to connect, to check in and the like. Uh, just so people feel less isolated, because it turns out that uh, uh, FaceTime is lovely, but it doesn't replace uh, real time. 
Hmm. Now, is this seems to have had a disproportionate effect on young people, uh, exacerbating an already rough mental health crisis for uh, how do we define young people in these circumstances? I think it's the under 18s for the most part. But um, yeah, he put out a he put out a different advisory um, in late 2021, I think. And, and the theme of that advisory was very similar to this one, which is, yes, the pandemic has made the young people's mental health crisis worse, but it was a horrifying picture to begin with. And so he talks about the uh, the kids who uh, reported self-harm, reported suicidal ideation, um, reported all these other uh, uh, illnesses and how those things have gone up, but that even in late 2019, things were not great. And so, you know, the pandemic's done this on a number of fronts, right? It's it's revealed how creaky our national uh, health care infrastructure is. It's revealed how busted our unemployment benefits uh, state by state are. Uh, it's shown, you know, uh, how many Americans really are, 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 uh, are living paycheck to paycheck. So what I think is interesting here is you know, things weren't that great and now they're worse. Mm hmm. You've noted in your earlier Daily 202 newsletters that from 2009 to 2019, the proportion of high school students reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40 percent and 36 percent considered attempting suicide, which 44 percent actually had a suicide plan. All of this is even prior to the pandemic. And the Surgeon General's warning or his intervention, as you mentioned, the advisories are typically meant for public health challenges that are of, quote, uh, demand the American people's immediate attention. And up until that point, it was tobacco, HIV, AIDS. Are we are we doing enough? Is Has this starting to resonate, seeing as how this goes back to at least um, 2009? So let me respond to that data with a little bit of anecdote. Um, I have been on a uh, quest for college with my high school junior, and it is startling the degree to which every college we have visited has emphasized has emphasized its attention to mental wellness. And you know, when 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 I did you know college tours for myself back in the Taft administration, they would talk about the food, they would talk about air conditioning. Um, it seems today's kids are being sold on uh, colleges that provide mental health care. It's very significant to me. I think, I think one of the things um, that's notable. I mean, I, I've said that that the, the pandemic made everything worse, but it has drawn more and more attention to the idea that it's not enough to advocate, you know, ninety minutes or whatever of exercise a day. It's not enough to advocate putting down the video games and going outside to touch grass, it's also important to put a premium on the, the on the mental well-being of, of young people. It's been paying attention specifically to that, not just whether they're obese, not just whether they're, you know, uh, smoking or drinking, but also just how they're how they're doing mentally. We're talking with Olivier Knox, the editor of Washington Post Daily 202, a newsletter you get in your inbox. Olivier, the, the loneliness pandemic um, connects to our politics as well. You've cited this Harvard Institute of Politics poll that found only 7% of young Americans view the U.S. as, quote, a healthy democracy. How are we seeing that play out today? Well, you know, um, we're seeing pretty significant levels of pessimism about 
um, the the American experiment among young people. Um, we've seen a few polls of late in which young people say that um, that they are doing okay, but that they worry about the state of the country. Um, and you know, one of the things that that you have to keep in mind is that. You know, some of these populations are the same populations that we are putting through active shooter drills every every school quarter or so, right? So they are they are being reminded in a pretty dramatic way, um, uh, fairly regularly, that uh, America in 2023 is a place where you can be shot dead in your school. Um, I think that probably has a pretty big impact on how they respond to that question uh, in the in the in the polling. Olivier, the broader malaise about American democracy comes amidst a challenged economy, uh, among global challenges as well. Every day we turn on the news and, you know, there's another Chinese spy balloon that's being navigated. There's a <laughs> migration crisis from uh, Latin America coming up to the U.S. and now a conflict breaking out in Sudan that's going to lead to another humanitarian crisis. What What is the role of U.S. ambassadors right now, especially when it comes to how we engage with Russia, for example, or with China. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, American ambassadors, you know, um, there there are obviously two kinds. One is the what I'll call the career career, and then the political, right? So, career um, is the folks who come up through the State Department or sometimes through the Defense Department and move over, um, and they are. Um, they're wed to the to, to American foreign policy their entire lives. And you've got the politicals who are basically sometimes the big campaign bundlers. Now, typically, the politicals get the easier jobs. They get sent to London or Paris. And the careers get sent to places like, I don't know, Beijing. So in Beijing, we have Nicholas Burns, who's a long time. He's technically a political because he, he uh, uh, retired from uh, uh, the diplomatic corps. But I would slot him in the career here because he's been doing this forever and ever. Former ambassador to NATO, a longtime foreign policy advisor to various presidents. Um, and he he actually has had a bit of a public role this week because he came out and gave a talk at the Stimson Center. It's a D.C. think tank. And one of the things that he talked about was really just how eager the United States is to resume high level communications with with the Chinese. Um, now, if if you if you if you homed if you homed in on the word uh, resume, good for you. That is the key word here. Um, the uh, the U.S. has been complaining for months now that, simply put, Beijing's not picking up the phone. And if that worries you, congratulations, you're right again. Um, yeah, it's not it's not great. You know, the the, the United States somehow finds a way to, finds a way to have conversations with the Russians to do what's called deconfliction, which is basically making sure we don't accidentally have our ships collide. Um, but there's not something similar with the Chinese, and we've had uh, we've had a lot of complaints, a lot of concerns expressed, not just by Nick Burns in Beijing, but also by the the uh, top communicator of the National Security Council, John Kirby. He's he's made the same public plea to the Chinese to please get back in touch. And you you follow this up closely. I can't think of a time when there was a more like all hands on deck plea from the United States for Beijing to communicate. That is. Um... That's something. I mean, we have talked about and seen how some ambassadors adopt uh, a, a an attitude that is very um, complicit or, you know, maybe in one era we would have called it going native. Um, 
as they live and, you know, engage with nationals of that country. Um, but it tends to not be the ambassadors to some of the great powers like Russia and China. In fact, in the Obama administration, Ambassador Michael McFaul pretty much got himself kicked out of the country because he was so strident about protecting freedom of the press, speaking out against Russian abuses while, you know, also living in their country. So why would Nick Burns, a career ambassador, uh, somebody who's been you know, around for a minute, make those types of statements? Well, there's a logistical, there's one logistical reason and one sort of policy reason. The logistical reason is that Nick Burns finally presented his credentials to Xi Jinping about a year after he arrived in China. Um, typically, ambassadors don't undertake major uh, uh, policy steps, certainly not engagement with the host country until they've done that, um, at least not at the highest levels. Um, so that's the logistical reason. The policy reason is it's it's very much the Biden administration policy now to ask in public fora uh, for better communication between the United States and China. You, br- you brought up McFaul. I, just, I can't help mentioning this. But during his time uh, as the U.S. ambassador to Russia, the Russians regularly harassed American diplomats. And one of their favorite moves was an American diplomat would come home to find that all the furniture in their house had been rearranged which is kind of a a major, like, we can get to you anytime Mm. we want kind of message. Mm. Mm. Um, Right out of, you know, an episode of The Americans. There is actually, Carrie Russell is back now in a show called The Diplomat, which I have not seen yet. Have you tried it out? I have not tried it out. I'm I'm a little nervous because the opening scenes of, what was it called, Madam Secretary, Mm. um, drove me off immediately. The, The idea that the President of the United States would make a secret trip to uh, rural America in in the sixteen car motorcade with no press coverage, um, was uh, far fetched. Is is I think the kindest I can come up with. Yeah, and you, um, this is folks. Olivier has traveled in several um, secret plane flights um, in which yes. you know the press was invited on those plane flights, and they did not announce that the secretary, the president, had landed in something like Afghanistan or Iraq until after they landed. So you are intimately familiar with the mechanics and logistics right. of how uh, presidents and uh, heads of state, you know, or uh, cabinet secretaries move around. Um, well, I will, uh, yes. But also, Sec- mm-hmm. but also he would have just, but also in the real world, the president would simply have had that person come in a side door of the White House. Yeah, he would have right? summoned, no, it was summoned that person. No right, there's no need for the, for the, you know, the three ring circus that is an airlift to, I don't remember what state she's from in the show, um, when you could just, you know, basically summon this person to the White House, have him come in, you know, a discreet side door and the press would be none the wiser. Just not. It just doesn't make any sense to have them do this big rigmarole. Anyway, that's a that's a that's a curious little tangent. But yes, yeah, so I'm, it, it kind of, I'm a little nervous kind of, about the diplomat. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, right. When, when you are too deep in the expertise, it makes uh, it, it the plausible deniability isn't there. Right. The make believe elements aren't there. And I know a bunch of doctors and they couldn't stand the show ER, despite George Clooney and Juliana Margulies. Like they just couldn't stand the way that like, this has never happened this way. Um, so, yes, I will maintain that healthy skepticism then about the diplomat. But Carrie Russell does seem to have her her uh, her niche on being um, national security adjacent uh, before we continue on the Hollywood um, line of talk. I want to bring us back to the foreign affairs piece because you have also been tracking Congressman McCarthy um, and statements he's made about Ukraine. Um, I find it very interesting that his narrative today is a little different 
than when it was when mm, Tucker Carlson was last on television. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the it really an interesting shift from from McCarthy on Ukraine. You know, um, in the run up to the midterms and even a little bit after the midterms, and as he was campaigning for speaker, his one of his regular lines was that there would be no blank check for Ukraine, and that was kind of the rhetoric coming from the people who um, oppose continued sustained American support for the government in Kiev. Um, he was uh, McCarthy though uh, was on this trip to Israel. And a Russian reporter asked him about into Ukraine, and and McCarthy really kind of lit into him and said, "I don't support you know the murder your country is committing in Ukraine. I do support aid to Ukraine." It was a very full-throated statement of support for continued aid to mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, now, how that's going to play here is kind of interesting, right? Like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, who who've pretty vociferously opposed um, into Ukraine, but who are absolutely central to um, McCarthy remaining speaker. I'm sort of wondering how they're going to take that kind of statement. But it was definitely, definitely a shift in the language that he's used. And he also um, extended an invitation to uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. Um, One of those, you know, just skip the White House and usual protocol comes straight to us. I don't know. Is is that something Netanyahu might might be interested in? I, I feel like there might be some precedent here. Well, they were pretty careful in Netanyahu's office not to jump on this one uh, and not to comment. Um, but yeah, you know, he, uh, John Boehner invited the former Republican speaker, John Boehner invited Netanyahu to address Congress and basically lobby both Congress and the American people against the Iran nuclear deal at a time when, mm-hmm. of course, that was one of uh, President Barack Obama's main foreign policy goals. So there is some precedent here. There is no end of the bad blood between Netanyahu and Obama. Uh, Biden and Netanyahu go back pretty far. And I don't think the relationship is as bad. But I also don't think it's super warm, much as we get the like, my friend, my friend, my friend in public remarks. Mm -hmm. And it does it does seem like there will be a formal Biden invitation or seeing some reporting about that. So maybe skipping the White House might not be the thing. Um, but what, what would McCarthy get if Netanyahu did accept the invitation? Well, I think, um, you know, there's this this ongoing fight over who is the bigger supporter of Israel. And, you know, that's going to that, that's sort of a perpetual feature of our politics. Um, he would be uh, he'd be somewhat elevated since he would be meeting with uh, Netanyahu. In, in I mean, it's obviously not a head of government, head of government kind of meeting, um, but it would be, you know, it, it would certainly um, uh, elevate the speaker in, in, in standing. Um, he might get a round of criticisms of the Biden administration, which also wants to somehow revive the Iran nuclear deal. I agree with you, though. I don't think the Biden administration's excuse uh, for not inviting Netanyahu was that Israeli politics were unsettled um, and they didn't want to put their thumb on the scales of this pretty acrimonious debate over uh, overhauling the country's judicial institutions. Um, if that gets if that gets settled, and I'm I'm, I'm going to bite my tongue, but if mm-hmm. if that gets settled, and it could it could get settled, then I would expect to see a Biden invitation. Um, you know, they they had sort of a delayed. If I'm remembering correctly, they had kind of a delayed phone conversation after Biden took office. Um, but I don't, you know, the Biden administration and the Obama administration are not um, in equal trouble over there. Um, the, the Obama stuff, I mean, you remember this, that, that Netanyahu dressed down Obama in the Oval Office for like eight minutes on the, the situation in the Middle East. And that really brought a lot of bad blood to that relationship. Biden's not, Biden's not especially uh, fond uh, of Netanyahu, as, as I understand it. But, but uh, 
it's not it's not nearly as bad. I, I would expect an invitation. Yeah, and that would be par for the course, right? It, it, the longstanding relationship between the United States and Israel, despite personality conflicts, is 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 a longstanding relationship. Uh, we're speaking with Olivier Knox. He's the daily editor. We're speaking with Olivier Knox. He's the editor of the Daily 202 with the Washington Post. Olivier, you also do a feature on Fridays um, that I really enjoy, <laughs> and it is taking politics outside of the beltway, uh, combining stories of how we experience daily life and helping us understand where politics comes into play. W- what are you keeping your eye on um, when it comes to those politics as personal stories? Well, what I'm trying to do is really two things. Uh, I'm trying to redefine what the Washington Post considers a political story so that it's not Senator A said something nasty about Senator B, sort of the kind of inside the beltway water cooler chatter that really doesn't have any impact at all on American lives, right, or no meaningful impact on people's lives. And I'm trying to uh, bring in really important big stories that do have meaningful impact on people's daily lives. So you're going to see a lot of pieces about the uh, the Colorado River drought, right? You're going to see a fair number of pieces about privacy and, well, about the erosion of privacy, I should say. Um, you're going to see a lot of stories about my home state of Vermont. Um, and that, in part, is because I am a huge believer in local and regional news. And watching it get hollowed out by venture capitalists all over this country is very depressing and giving me heartburn. Uh, what I tell people is you can shrug at the death of local news if you are 100% confident that the biggest employer in your city or state is always going to be above board and never make it, never have an accident. Mm-hmm. Same with your leading politicians. Same if you are absolutely positively sure that no national advocacy groups are, 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 uh, are not driving their legislative agenda through your state legislature, which is increasingly the case. Um, uh, and so these, these Friday columns are trying to do both of those things. Kind of say like, look, I know sometimes I write about, uh, you know, Senator A says Senator B is a jackass, but I also know that, you know, cities being cut off from drinking water is a bigger story or, um, healthcare deserts in parts of the United States are a bigger story or supply chain disruptions that drive the price of consumer goods, notably groceries up are a bigger deal. And so it's kind of an effort to sort of reset the conversation that we have about politics. Olivia Knox, editor of The Daily 202 with The Washington Post. Folks, you should sign up for it. Um, Great summary and analysis of not only the daily news coming out of Washington, but um, around the country. And as he just mentioned, helping us understand what's really going on in our own communities. Olivier, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm your host, Neira, here on Sirius XM Progress. Tell me everything. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.